at your house and you see like your mom or dad or maybe a brother or sister and they need help with something, um, who, who can give me an example of a situation like that where maybe your mom or your dad or your brother or sister needs help with something? Drew? No, not what you'll do, but like what, what, what would be a situation like that where they'll need help? Saley? Mom might need help with the dishwasher. So you're at home, your mom is doing the dishes, and you see that she needs help. So now I want you to tell me what are ways in which you can respond to that situation? What can you do? What are your options? Kate? So you can offer to help, right? That's awesome. What else? Zaley? So don't help, yeah. right? Ramona? Help? Okay, so help, don't help. Is there, is there any other option? Zeke? Get somebody else to help. That's still kind of like don't helping, right? Delegating. Yeah. Dinah? You can bargain with your mom to you something else to do? Oh, all right. So try to get paid for the job for helping. Okay. What about, what about just doing nothing? Is that an option? Why not? I mean, that's not, that's not groaning, right? It's not complaining. But what about doing nothing? What's that? Not helping? So it's, you're saying it's the same thing? How many of you think not doing anything is not helping? Right? That should be everybody. Everybody raise your hands up. Right. The reason why I'm asking you these questions is because today in our passage, we see Jesus, uh, he's, he's in the synagogue and he's teaching on the Sabbath. And there's this guy there who has a hand that is withered. His, his hand doesn't work right. And uh, according to the law, Jesus isn't supposed to do anything because it's the Sabbath. He's not supposed to help this guy on the Sabbath. And so Jesus has the choice that, that we talked about you having with helping your mom with the dishes. He can either help or he cannot help. And what Jesus says is when he's talking to the Pharisees who don't want him to help, he explains that there's only one option, or there's only two options for him. He can either do good or he can do evil. Helping this man, even though it's on the Sabbath, is the right thing to do. And doing anything else than that would be doing the evil thing. Jesus, of course, always does the right thing. Uh, and that's what we're going to see in our passage this morning. So kids, I would encourage you to go home and ask your parents uh, first, uh, what they learned from today's passage about Jesus and how he's, he's always doing the right thing. He's never doing the wrong thing. And then maybe, uh, you know, ask your mom and dad what you can do to help them around the house. Uh, parents, go home and speak the gospel to your kids. Talk to them about who Jesus is and how he always does the right thing, even when people don't want him to. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll get into our passage this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. That, that in it, you reveal yourself to us. You reveal your son to us. You reveal your spirit to us. You make yourself known to us in and through your word. How we pray this morning that you would, you would use your word to, to instruct us and to teach us more about who you are and what you've done and, and more about who we are and how we need to respond to you 
uh, in obedience. God, we pray that you would send your spirit to, to equip and enable us to respond rightly to your word. Uh, we can't do it on our own, and so we need your help uh, to do this together this morning. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you that you, you came down here to, to this place, to this broken place, to, to the mess that we made in your creation to set it all right. I thank you that we get to a, get a see you doing that in the Gospels together this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter uh, 6. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 19 this morning. Um, but before we read it, you know, I want to just kind of preface this by saying, you know, this, at least, at least for me, it may not be for you, but for me, this passage is just kind of like a, an, an okay passage. It's just kind of here. It's partly because next week's passage is Jesus kind of getting into his, his teaching in the, the Sermon on the Mount or in Luke, the Sermon on the Plain. And so he's going to like just throw out these amazing truths. And, and for me, uh, I don't know if you're like this, but whenever I'm, whenever I'm reading the word, uh, I, I always want it to just be outstanding. You know, I want to I want to read a passage and then just see some amazing, profound truth in it, and get something great out of it that I can benefit from and I can share with other people. And so when I when I spend time in God's Word, and you know, it's just kind of it's just kind of there. I I feel like a failure. I feel like I didn't do it right. I feel like you know I'm I'm missing something. You know, I want to I want to see these 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 great truths that are evidence of God's grace in His Word and evidence of His grace in me. Um, but but when I'm like that, and and when we're like that, I think one thing that we're failing to recognize is that when God's Word is just ordinary to us, it is evidence of His grace in us. Right, that that can be taken to an extreme. Right, if every time we hear about the gospel, we're just like, "Oh, that's great," that's that's bad. But sometimes, right, when we see Jesus having authority over the Sabbath in this passage, when we see him calling 12 disciples who we've heard about before, when we see him getting ready to teach the Sermon on the Mount, and and, and we, we just kind of already know about this stuff, that's a cause for celebration in us. That's evidence of his grace in us, that he has called us out of the multitude to be his disciples, to be his followers. The fact that we already know these truths is a great and good thing. And so when we come to his word and, and it's not exciting and amazing, uh, we, we shouldn't beat ourselves up and be depressed. Instead, we should celebrate the fact that God has changed us such that his word in some ways is normal to us because that's abnormal. That's not who we naturally are. And so we should celebrate that. And so as we read this passage, um, whether you know today's passage is amazing to you or just kind of okay, uh, I hope that you see that as evidence of the fact that his spirit is working in you to transform you, to help you understand his word better this morning. So let's read verses 1 through 19 of Luke chapter 6. It says, On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. 
On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he'd heal on the, ha- on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with a withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases." And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. So in this passage today, there's there's basically three things happening. First is that Jesus has conflict with the scribes and Pharisees about the Sabbath. Then Jesus calls his his 12 apostles, and then last he gets ready to kind of start teaching this, this great crowd that gathers. So the first two things, or the first thing is this, this conflict he has with the scribes and Pharisees about the Sabbath. And there's two kind of separate occasions where this happens. The first one, Luke tells us, Jesus and his disciples are out there. They're walking around. They're walking on the Sabbath. And as they're walking, they pass through a grain field. And his disciples are hungry. So they grab some of the grain and they start rubbing it between their hands to kind of thresh it so that they can eat it. And the Pharisees, who are just following Jesus and his disciples around so they can bust their chops, see them do this and say, hey, you guys are doing what is illegal on the Sabbath. That sounds crazy to us, right? Because it doesn't really seem like the disciples did anything wrong, but the simple act of them rubbing grain between their hands, according to the law, or according to the Pharisees' interpretation of the law, is them doing work on the Sabbath, which is against the Old Testament law. And so they call them to account. They say, you know, why are your disciples doing what's illegal to do on the Sabbath? And then Jesus responds to them by quoting the story from the Old Testament. And the story he quotes is from 1 Samuel 21. It's when David is on the run. So he's out on the run. He and his men are starving. They're hungry. And so they go to the temple and they ask the priest, hey, do you have anything to eat? And the priest says, we don't have anything to eat except for the bread of presence. And there's a special bread that only the priests are supposed to eat. David says, give us that bread. The guy gives them the bread and they eat it. And that is against the law. It, 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 it wasn't in line with how things should have gone in the Old Testament, under the Old Testament law. But David uses the authority he has as king to provide for his men so that they wouldn't starve. Because essentially what he's saying is it's better for them to live than it is for them to not eat this bread that's only reserved for this specific group of people. Jesus, in quoting this story, is making an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's saying if it was okay for David to do that... How much more is it acceptable for his disciples who are following the anointed Messiah to do what they're doing? Because he's saying, as he says at the very end, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's saying, I have authority over the Sabbath. So it's okay for my disciples to do this because I'm greater than the law. Jesus is saying, and he says elsewhere later in the Gospels, that the Son of Man doesn't exist for the Sabbath. The Sabbath exists for man. 
So he's, what he's saying is it's more important for them to be able to eat and, and feed themselves than it is for them to keep this arbitrary Old Testament law or this arbitrary regulation the Pharisees have created based on the Old Testament law. He's saying the Sabbath is less important than people. And this next example is going to feed right in line with that. Luke tells us on another Sabbath, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. So he's there teaching. The Pharisees and the scribes are there. Luke tells us specifically, right, they watched him to see whether he'd heal on the Sabbath. So there's this man who has a a handicapped hand, his right hand, which uh, is is just emphasizing how significant of a problem this is because the vast majority of the people in the world are right-handed. So having your right hand be handicapped is is much worse than having your left hand. And so these, these Pharisees and scribes, they see this. Jesus sees this man. Everybody sees this man. Jesus is concerned for him. The scribes and the Pharisees just want to watch to see if Jesus is going to do something that they can criticize him for. They're not concerned about this man. They're concerned about what Jesus is going to do with this man. Jesus, in verse 8, he tells us, knew their thoughts. Jesus knows what they're thinking. So he calls the man up in front of everybody. He says, come up and stand here. And then he says this. He says, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And here, it seems like he's kind of leaving out an option, right? You can do good, you can do harm, you can save life, you can destroy it. And he's got this man up there as an example. But when I hear Jesus say that, I want to say there's another option, right? He He can just do nothing. Right? Just, just wait till the next day and then heal this guy. But that's not right. right. Jesus doesn't offer that option because that option is doing harm. That option is not loving. That option is not caring for this man who needs healing. And so Jesus pulls him up in front of everybody. He offers those options to the scribes and Pharisees. They don't answer because there's not an answer they can give to that question. Jesus looks around at them all. He sees their silence and he tells the man to stretch out his hand and be healed. And as he does so, this guy's hand is restored. He fixes him. He heals him. He makes him whole. He, he does what he came to do. Jesus came into this world that is broken to fix what is broken in. And we see him doing that for this man on the Sabbath when the broken scribes and Pharisees just want to see him do nothing. Jesus heals him. And look at how they respond in verse 11. It says, They were filled with fury and discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. If you're wondering, this is is the wrong response. Right? If you see with your own eyes someone get healed right in front of you, your response should not be to be filled with fury and figure out, like, what am I going to do to that person who just did this thing? We look at that and we laugh and we think that's ridiculous that they responded that way. How could they possibly respond that way? But I think one thing we don't realize is that we often respond with sin when we see other people doing good. And I think one of the places where we see this the most is when we scroll through social media. We see other people celebrating good things or doing good things and we're filled with, with envy or jealousy or anger or judgment. And, and you know, we just... We're we're hiding behind our screen, and so it's easy for us to respond that way when we see other people doing good things or God doing good things in other people. So the reality is is that we're not that much different than the scribes and Pharisees are. We just want to think that we're different. 
So this week, as, as we go out from this place, I would encourage you to, to watch how you respond to God doing good things in other people and through other people. And, and make sure that, that you're not doing what the scribes and Pharisees are doing, that you're not responding to good things with sinful actions or sinful emotions, but that instead we, should cel- we would celebrate what God is doing no matter who it is that he's doing it through. That's what our response should be to Jesus working, not, not sin. The next thing that happens in the passage is that Jesus calls his 12 disciples. There's 12 apostles. Luke tells us, in these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God, and then when day comes, he calls his disciples and chooses 12 from them. And there's two things we should see about this. The first thing we should see is that Jesus prays before doing this. Specifically, Luke tells us that he continued in prayer all night to God. The reason why this is important is because every time in Luke and Acts, and Luke and Acts, if you remember, is is like a two-volume set. Luke wrote both of them. Every time in Luke and Acts, before there's a major decision to be made or a major crisis that happens, the emphasis is on the people praying. Jesus prays every single time before a major event happens in the Gospels. And in the book of Acts, the church prays every single time before a major event happens. The reason why they do that, because that's what Jesus did, and they're following him. So the question that we should ask ourselves when we see that pattern in the Gospels and we see Jesus again and again withdrawing to pray is, is why do we live our lives differently? Why do we make major decisions without praying? Why do we not pray knowing that this week is going to come with challenges? We should be more like Jesus in this way where we spend time in prayer, where we would, would continue in prayer all night to God. I think... If, if this verse was about my life, it would say, Dan, you know, watched Netflix all night long. <laughs> he binged Jack Ryan on Amazon Prime uh, on Saturday night. Not he continued in prayer all night long. We should pray more because we know, like, we can look back on Luke and Acts and see, right, they did this before every major event. They did this before every major crisis because we're looking backwards. What we cannot do is look into the future and see, hey, tomorrow there's going to be a major decision that I have to make or tomorrow there's going to be a major crisis that I'm going to face. One of my kids is going to get sick this week. We can't know what's coming. And so instead of trying to look back and fix things, we should just adapt an attitude of prayer so that we're praying before these things happen so that we're prepared for them to happen. He also says that he, he called his 12 disciples, or he called his disciples and chose from them 12. And I think this is really important for us to get because a lot of times I think when we, when we imagine Jesus with his disciples, we just think about these 12 guys. As if Jesus is just kind of walking around in a group with 12 people following him. But the reality is that there's a, a large group of disciples. And Luke says he chooses from that group 12 guys to be his apostles. The point is that there's, there's a bigger group of people that are following Jesus, that are being his disciples, so that later, right, when we get to Acts and Judas needs to be replaced because he was kind of a failed disciple and he kills himself, there's another disciple that's been with him from the beginning, that's been following Jesus from the beginning, that can replace Judas and can take up that position. There is a larger group of disciples and he just chooses 12 to be kind of part of this inner circle. And then he names them all. And I think it, it, it's important for us to understand what happens to these guys. Um, this, 
It's not all from scripture, right? Because scripture doesn't tell us the end of all of their story. We find out about the end of James's story. James, the brother of John, is killed by Herod in the book of Acts. And so him, for sure, we know this is exactly what happened to him. But the rest were, were based on, on church history. And I just want to tell you what happened to them so that you know the kind of lives that these guys lived after this point. Peter, uh, tradition tells us that he was crucified uh, Upside down. He, he specifically requests, according to church history, to be crucified upside down because he didn't want to die in the same way that Jesus died. Uh, Andrew, Peter's brother, uh, Christians in Russia claim that he was the first person to bring the gospel to their land. He also preached in Asia Minor, which is Turkey, and in Greece. And in Greece, he was crucified, died. Um, Philip had a really big ministry in North Africa and then Asia Minor. Um, while he was there, he preached the gospel to the wife of a Roman proconsul, a Roman politician. She converted, and in retaliation, her husband had him killed. Um, Bartholomew uh, traveled all over the place. He went to India with Thomas. He went to Armenia. Um, he went Armenia. He went to Ethiopia and southern Arabia. And uh, there's a kind of widespread variety of accounts of how he died. But they all say that he was killed for preaching the gospel. Matthew is the tax collector and the author of the first gospel. Uh, he ministered in Persia and Ethiopia. He was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Thomas uh, was active in Syria, and he preached as far east as India, where he was martyred and uh, pierced through with uh, the spears of four soldiers. James, the son of Alphaeus, so the other James, uh, he ministered in Syria, and Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that he was stoned and then clubbed to death. Simon the Zealot ministered in Persia. He was killed for refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. And then John, the one guy we haven't talked about, is the only disciple who died of natural causes. Um, he was persecuted pretty heavily in the late 90s um, and was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, which is where he wrote the book of Revelation. But before that happened, they tried to kill him by boiling him in oil, but he survived. So he, he died of natural causes, but he certainly suffered for the gospel for the rest of them. And that's their story. And what's, what's crazy to me about that is that these guys, these 12 guys are just normal guys, right? Matthew was a tax collector. Uh, four of them were fishermen. Uh, the other ones just like, they weren't, they weren't missionaries. They weren't priests. They weren't rabbis. They weren't teachers of the law. They weren't scribes. They weren't Pharisees. They were, they were normal people. And then Jesus called them out from this group of people that was following them. He entrusted them with his spirit. He give, gave them the great commission. And then they went out and did what he told them to do. They followed him on mission and they died like he died for the sake of the gospel except for Judas, right, who Luke tells us became a traitor. He betrayed him and then killed himself. And that's not to say, like, hey, we should be like these people. But what we should do is we should recognize that, that we're more like them than unlike them. We may not die like they died, but we are normal people who Jesus has called to follow him on mission. We are normal people who he has entrusted us with his spirit and trusted us with his gospel and, and we should be willing like they were to go to great lengths to minister to that gospel even if it brings suffering on ourselves. Jesus 
Luke tells us that he, he came down with them. He stood on a level place and a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon came to hear him to be healed of their diseases. So there's this huge crowd of people. Jesus heals some, he casts out unclean spirits. But, but notice in verse 17, the division between these kind of two groups of people. So there's Jesus' disciples, of which 12 are apostles, and then there's also this, this great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem. And so there's this, this crowd of people around him. Some of the people are the 12 apostles who are kind of this inner circle that he has. And then outside of that, there's this greater circle of disciples who are following him. And then outside of that, there's this multitude of people who have just come to hear him. They don't really know who he is yet. They don't really know what he's come to do yet. But they're there uh, to hear the teaching that we're going to get to next week. And so I think that as we try to respond to a passage like this, right, the, the Sabbath doesn't really apply to us anymore because we're Christians under a new law that Jesus and a new covenant that Jesus inaugurated with his blood. And so, so we don't have to keep the Sabbath like they kept the Sabbath. And so that those, those don't really apply to us. And we're not these, these 12 guys who Jesus has called out to do these things. Um, but I think we should recognize that we are in a place that's different than all of these people that have come to hear Jesus, right? He's called us out of the multitude to be his disciples, to be his followers, not because of anything in us, right? In the same way that he didn't look at Peter and say, right, you're, you're going to make a great missionary. He looked at Peter and he said, you know, you're a fisherman that can't even fish right, so I'm going to tell you how to fish, and I'm going to tell you what you're going to do for me. He calls these people out of their ordinary lives to lead them in an extraordinary life. We have been called out of the multitude, and because of that, we can read a passage like this and, and its unexceptionalness is evidence of his grace in us. Right? Because we already know about who Jesus is and what he's done. We already know that he called 12 disciples. We already know what his disciples did. We know what's coming in the book of Acts. We know the end of the story and that's evidence of his grace in us. But we should also be reminded that that multitude still exists. There are still, and, and not just in Tower Town, in Hannibal too, people all around the world that don't know who Jesus is and what he did for them. And that's what he called us out of that multitude for, so that we would be those who go forth with the good news of the gospel and tell them about who he is and what he's done. And so I hope that this week that, that we would be faithful to do that, that we would recognize that there are people all around us who are going about their lives not knowing about the Savior who came and died for them, not knowing about the one who can, can heal them and, and free them from their slavery to sin and death and Satan. That's what he sent us to do, to tell them. That's what we've been entrusted with. That's what our mission is as we follow him on mission, to be those who speak up, who open our mouths and share the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so I hope that seeing Jesus do that in the Gospels, even in passages that we already know and we're already familiar with, that he would cause us to do that. Um, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, I pray that, that by his Spirit, he would cause us to, to recognize how extraordinary this ordinary thing that we do every Sunday is. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then Daniel's going to come and lead us in that. Jesus, we thank you that you came to fix what is broken in this world. 
that you, you fix this, this man's broken hand in, in Luke chapter 6. And that you fix what's broken in us. That you free us from, from the penalty and power of our sin. That you, you, you buy us out of our slavery to it. And that you give us your spirit to make us new, to make us whole, to, to begin a process of us becoming fully new creations. I pray that as we continue our service together today, that you would help us to respond rightly to, to who you are and, and the miraculous things you do in us. That we would praise you for the exceptional and the unexceptional ways in which you have changed and transformed us. We pray that you would remind us by your spirit that that you have drawn us out of the multitude. You've called us to yourself. You've set us apart And you've sent us back to the multitude with the good news of who you are and what you've done. We pray that we would be faithful uh, ministers and messengers of the gospel this week in our city and in our lives. Jesus, in your name we pray.